You're listening to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and best moments in life, a place where we get a chance to hear from people who are creating a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. This is a place for connection, to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Making Our Way. Today, we're talking with Charlie Stewart. Charlie is a genome scientist, a rare disease dad, and an incredible advocate. He spent more than two decades as a scientist working on mapping the human genome. It was important work and a passion for him. But when his daughter Imogene was born, it became personal. Shortly after her preterm birth, Imogene was diagnosed with a catastrophic and potentially fatal form of epilepsy, and a short time later with cerebral palsy. Several years later, her little brother Jasper was also born preterm. He suffered severe brain damage and was also diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Charlie's story weaves together the intellect and the brilliance of science with the emotion and the heartache of being a dad to two special needs children. Charlie might be the smartest person that I've ever had a conversation with, but talking to him is like spending time with a comfortable old friend. He shares with us the really vulnerable human side of his life, things like what a perfect day looks like with his family, and what his hopes and dreams are for his children. And he really gently explains the advances of and the hope in science, as well as the limitations and the acknowledgement that we still have so much to learn. Charlie is now the patient advocacy lead for Congenica. Congenica is a digital health company that's focused on improving lives by rapidly converting genomic data into information that's usable for patients and their doctors. Charlie's story is fascinating, and it is filled with heart, hope, and love. Hi, Charlie. It's good to have you here with us today. I have to tell you, when I thought about chatting with you, and you and I are you know, newly acquainted and getting to know each other, I struggled to know where to start because you have such an amazing background and an incredible history. And so I want us to talk about all that today. But will you will you get us started, Charlie, with just sharing with us a little bit of your professional background and what you do scientifically? So I'm a genome scientist. I've worked on the human genome in one form or another since 1994. And you can probably tell from my accent that I'm from the United Kingdom. And I've spent my career working on the Welcome Genome Campus, which is near Cambridge. And that is where the Sanger Institute is located. The Sanger Institute is most famous for generating around one third of the human genome for the Human Genome Project. So I spent around 22 years working there. I worked on some really interesting projects. But obviously, you know, the main thread was working on the human genome. I led the initial 
analysis for human chromosome 10 that was published in Nature back in 2004. And more latterly, I established a sort of international consortium of, of groups to work together to investigate genes that are thought or known to be involved with epilepsy. And the reason I started looking at epilepsy, it was the, the birth of my, my first child, my daughter Imogen. She was born in 2012 and she was very premature. She was 29 weeks. She was in intensive care for around a month. And uh, when she came home, you know, things were fine. She seemed to progress as, as normal until sort of around six months old when she just stopped doing things. And when she got really, really upset at different times of the day, which would just, you know, as a parent's intuition, you just know there's something not right, but you can't put your finger on it. We took her to the GP, actually, because we were so concerned about, you know, what we were seeing. And she was diagnosed with gastrointestinal reflux which in situations such as this that I'm about to tell you about is, is a very common misdiagnosis. But anyway, a, a little while later, I mean, it was only sort of a matter of days or possibly a week or so, that she started to make these really curious movements, sort of jackknife movements of the arms get thrown out and the eyes would roll, the head would turn to one side. And these happened in sort of clusters of around, you know, every few seconds over a period of sort of five to 10 minutes. We videoed them and then we took her to our local hospital, which very luckily for us is the teaching hospital for Cambridge University, a hospital called Addenbrooke's, where she was diagnosed with a, a very severe form of epilepsy called West syndrome, or also known as infantile spasms. Essentially, what you have to do is to stop the spasms from occurring because it's the spasms themselves that are causing massive brain malfunction or brain damage, if, if you like. And thankfully, our clinician who, uh, who saw us was actually actively involved in a clinical trial that was looking at exactly this type of epilepsy. And she was enrolled in that and her seizures stopped in 24 hours, which was just amazing. She began to develop again, not as perhaps as other children do, not at the same rate, but she did begin to develop again. And but unfortunately, a couple of years or a year and a half after that, she was diagnosed with very severe cerebral palsy. And so so while she can't stand, she is actually able to, to speak and she speaks two languages. My wife is from Germany, so Imogen is, is bilingual and she'll often have to translate for me from uh, German into English because my German is not as good as hers. Oh, that's amazing. Charlie, if, if, I can, if I can just take you back to that time when you started noticing that you know, Imogene was, she was struggling and, and she was having those jackknife movements, as you call it. So you are an accomplished scientist, but at this point, you're also, you're a first time, you're a new dad. What was going through your head from both perspectives? How are you processing that? Well, as a scientist, you know, as I said, I, I, I was looking at the human genome. I had a very broad view of the human genome and you know, all the different functions of genes that we know about there. And, and I think I was very, very ignorant about epilepsy. It was really not until we knew we had to go to accident emergency that my sort of scientific mind kicked in because everything was dad. Everything was from a dad's point of view. And it wasn't at that time, I, I, I didn't really, I didn't think about my work being in any way related to what it was I was seeing. The emotions of a father were, at first it was just sort of, well, it, it can't be anything serious because that always happens to other people. It can't happen to me. Uh, not So then, of course, you know, when 
when you do realise that there is something very, very serious, and we, again, when we got to Addison Emergency, we, we knew there was something wrong, but hadn't realised how serious it was. It wasn't until pretty much the clinician sat down with us. He, he was brilliant. He's an amazing clinician. He did everything right, I would say, in the way he approached us and spoke to us. But of course, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't sugarcoat bad news, really, can you? It's a searing pain still to think about. I mean, I don't think about it all the time. I, I, I really, really don't, actually. But I do, when I still think about it, it's still one of those moments where life will never be the same again. It, it's, it's a huge change. You know, because we were given a we were given a leaflet. He, the, the clinician didn't say too much. He knows you're not going to be able to take it in. So what he's done is he's given you a leaflet, which explains more about what it is he's just diagnosed you with. I remember think looking through it and saying that you know one in twenty children who have this will die by the time they're age of five. And I was thinking one in twenty actually that's not bad odds really. You know, but I mean that sounds silly, doesn't it? In many ways, but you know you try to you try to find the positives from from you know such a such an awful awful diagnosis and yeah and thinking about you know actually both my wife and I were physically sick after that and yeah so it's it's thinking back about it is it's I I try not to Mm -hmm. yeah I understand I understand but you have Charlie you've come so far from there and with so much hope and and some really really pretty incredible answers in a clinical trial How's Imogene doing now? Yeah, she's great. She's she's fabulous. She goes to mainstream school at the moment, but she will be leaving that when we go to Germany. But she's immensely popular. And she has taught the school a huge amount. I had a chat with the headmaster who says, you know, our, play, our school is such a better place with her here. She's taught us so much about what it is like to overcome adversity. You know, what it, you know we take things for granted that life is so easy, but you know, you know, we, we see Imogen and her struggles and just the way she gets over it. She's... She's got a fabulous smile. She's she's very, very funny. She's got a, a wicked sense of humor. She really, really, truly does. I think that's interesting. I I say that a lot about my Joseph. And I, I, you know, when you're, especially when your child has a special medical need and, you know, kind of a difficult road, I think as a parent, we feel like we have to fix it and we have to have all the answers. And I think I've learned, because Joseph's 18 now, that if I just pay attention he will teach me more than I will ever be able to teach him. You know, they really are incredible, incredible teachers. And I think it's because as kids, they focus on living, not on the future and what's coming, but just truly on on what's in front of them. So you said Imogene has taught her school some things and the headmaster is so grateful for her. What do you think she's taught you as a dad? I'm a much nicer person, I think. I'm a much more... I'm probably much kinder, much more tolerant and understanding of of everyone because it's very easy to criticise people if you don't know who they are. The more you get to know people, the more to realise that everyone has something about them that perhaps they're uh, insecure about or or upset about and that sort of thing. We've yet to experience any sort of negative comments. I think as children, people tend to be very kind. But Imogen has just... Might sound silly, but it's just transformed our life into something so much better. And it's so much more fulfilling, I would say. It's important for, you know, it, it's, it's important Imogen actually has a, a life. She's not just a, a diagnosis or a wheelchair or an appointment or an MRI scan. You know, she's a child and she we just have to let her live. 
So that brings me to something that I, I want you to share with us and talk about is Imogene's also, she's a sister to her little brother, Jasper. Yeah, Imogen is a, she is a, a sister. So briefly, I'll, I'll just give it a bit more background about Imogen and how she was, she was put onto a genome study, something called the Deciphering Developmental Disorders study, which happened to be on the same campus as where I was working. That genome study didn't find anything, perhaps a technology at that time wasn't looking at everything. You know, we, you know the, the human genome is massively complicated. There's so much of it that we just don't understand yet. So anyway, because of that, she was at Enton to the 100,000 Genome Study. It's essentially part of the new genomic medicine. Well, it, it was the forerunner to our new genomic medicine service, which is run by, our, by the NHS and was set up by the ex-Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, who had a son with severe cerebral palsy and a very severe type of uh, epilepsy, which is very similar to her syndrome, called Otahara syndrome. And sadly, his son Ivan died around the age of six. So Imogen was put on that. And again, that found nothing. And I got the, I got the email from my clinician, one, literally one minute before I went into my son's 12-week scan. And it said, essentially all I could read at the time I scanned down, it was, we haven't found anything to explain Imogen's problems. So that was kind of reassuring in some respects, but of course, you know, in other respects, you're still thinking about you know, why does Imogen have her, her challenges? Jasper was actually born at 28 weeks, so even even younger than than Imogen, and he was on intensive care for two months, and it was before just before Christmas 2017 when we were about to go home. Actually, we were about to be discharged when the consultant came in and, and said he said we had to have a chat. In essence, he said to us, we're really, really worried about Jasper. Uh, he suffered catastrophic brain damage during birth. And unfortunately, it takes a good couple of months to be able to see the damage in the brain. Because what's happened is he's been starved of oxygen. Parts of his brain have died and turned to liquid. And they've left these holes. And the holes don't fill back up with liquid. And that's what we can see on the scan. And of course, that means he's very likely to have cerebral palsy, autism, epilepsy, you know, you name any neurological challenge he, he was potentially going to have. I'm not trying to compare the two events, but I think, you know, we'd wanted to complete our family. And in some very naive and potentially silly way, we'd, we'd hope that Jasper might have been there to, to look after Imogen when she's a bit older. But of course, that's now not the case. He's very severely disabled he can't speak and he can't stand he has severe cerebral palsy again and he was he again he was put on a, a genome study actually at the at Cambridge University and that didn't find anything what does that say to you if you can't find anything in, the, in a genome study does that mean that disorders genetic or not well I think it's really important for people if they don't get a genetic diagnosis for their disorder is for them not to think that it's definitely not genetic you know as I alluded to earlier you know the human genome still has so much of it that we, we don't know what it does. And because we don't know what it does, we can't tell if bits of that genome could in fact be contributing towards disease. We can only tell really if it's contributing towards disease, if, if we can see if it's affecting some genes. And of course, you know, that, that, that's still to be done. The, the, the technology is getting much, much better. That's a really interesting point you bring up though. So I'm curious on, on your take on this, because as a scientist and in, in I'm not a scientist, but here's how I view it, that you are uncovering things. You are searching for answers as a scientist, but you readily acknowledge there's still so much that we don't know. 
And I think that that is public perception is that we can, we can crack the code on anything. So how do you reconcile that in, in your own mind as, you know, a dad who's searching for answers and yet, you know, the reality of it is there's no fast track around this. There are things we just don't know yet. How do you grapple with that? How do you accept that? Well, in some ways, I think it's really exciting that there is so much stuff to be uncovered, you know, to, to work out how, how the human genome works or how we work. So that, that's, that's really exciting. It, frustrating as well, because I know that it takes quite a long time to adopt these new technologies that are essentially research technologies into the clinic, which, of course, you, you, you can't rush this stuff in. You have to make sure that you know, everything's reproducible and you know, the quality is, is good and what have you. But knowing the potential of genomic medicine, precision medicine, not just its ability to tell you why you might be ill, but also the potential for the genome to tell you which drugs to take. And I think that's a really that's a really exciting area of, of genomics that you know is, is taking off now. We're still limited to the number of genes that we know about that can be targeted by, by by drugs, but you know you have to start somewhere. Do you think what's has yet to be discovered is that where is that where the hope lies for those of us who don't have answers, or we don't have a cure, or a treatment, or a you know an answer? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm involved with people who are looking at cerebral palsy as a neurological, a genetic neurological disorder in its own right, because I think there's still the perception that, you know, cerebral palsy is just an accident of birth. Likewise, preterm birth, it's just, just bad luck, but, you know, it's increasingly not the case. You know, we know that there are genetic drivers behind things like placental abruption. So, there are genetic reasons why a placental abruption may have occurred in the first place, for example. And likewise, we know that at least one in four cerebral palsies is genetic. But that's something I'm so passionate about that um, I am actively involved in raising awareness about you know, the genetics behind these you know, preterm births and, and cerebral palsy. And I'm actively involved with scientists and clinicians to, to investigate this further. What strikes me as you're sharing so much of, you know, your journey, you really went from scientist to dad with with a severe medical need for your own child. And now sort of you're you've bridged that. You are still in the scientific world. You're an incredible advocate at Congenico, but you still, you know, go home at night and you are dad to Imogene and, and Jasper. So I, I feel like you had a little bit of a head start in this journey as a dad because you had this scientific background and knowledge and you could speak the language a little bit and you maybe knew what was going on in the landscape of research. Is there anything though that as the the dad of, a, of two patients, is there anything that surprised you along the way so far that you didn't expect? So, and this has changed massively since we were a, uh we were first involved in genome studies, was the sheer amount of time it takes to get a result back. You know, with, uh, you're talking a couple of, couple of years, maybe more, to get a turnaround time. And I think while we kind of knew that was the case, it was still frustrating. And I think we didn't really feel in a great deal of control because we didn't know what state, what, what what part of the pipeline, so where our DNA was. But of course, that's changed massively. And, and, and you've got people like uh, Dr. Stephen Kingsmore at Rady Children's Hospital, who is really the, 
he he is the forefront of including genomic medicines in in everyday healthcare because I think he holds the Guinness World Record for taking a blood sample of a child and then producing a report which is around 19 and a half hours which is just astonishing because what that means is he can go on his ward round take a sample and the next time he goes around the next day on his ward round he can then see if there's anything he can do to help the child and in many cases I talks I've heard from him He's able to do stuff. He's able to make people better based upon knowing what their underlying genome is. Early intervention matters, right? Absolutely essential in every way. I suppose the thinking more as a dad now, the world of disability, it's a very, it's a very hard life, very hard life to live. And you come up against almost like deliberate barriers from people to stop you getting help whether you it's it's these enormous forms you have to fill in they're just reams and reams of pages of paper that you have to fill in and it seems to me that it's slightly crazy that you know you sit down with your pediatrician who knows you as well as anybody else does apart from mum and dad she knows exactly in our case she knows exactly what we need and I just wonder why in our healthcare system, she wouldn't just be able to say, these people need this bit of equipment, this amount of financial support, etc. And she clicks a button and that goes straight through to the, the, the central services or whatever, instead of us having to relive. And when you do, when you fill in these forms for whatever it is you need, you relive your worst day. And it's just, it's, it's hard on top of everything else. Yes. It's almost as if it's like trying to, be careful what I say, I suppose, but it's almost trying to filter out people who are so desperate they're going to fill it in and get some money, and those who are really not quite as desperate but really desperate anyway, <laughs> who just can't face it. Oh, Charlie, I, I could not agree with you more, and I will say it for you if this is what you're trying to say, because I will say I say it, and and we we have have the same issues here in the states, and I think probably even a little bit more. But I always equate it to Las Vegas to gambling. I'm like. It's like they're playing the odds of who's going to really fill it out, who's going to fight the insurance battles, who's going to, you know, who's going to go the distance and who's not. And the house always wins. Right. I mean, that's it, it just is a reality of of healthcare and of, you know, a rare disease, even a chronic condition. It is like a full time job. And I'll tell you the thing that makes me crazy is when I'm in an appointment and I'll have Joseph with me and somebody will come in and they'll say, so, um, so what brings you here today? And I'm like, I'm not ordering off a menu at a restaurant. Like, what do you mean? What, what brings me here today? You know, what brings me here? (laughs) We need help or we have an issue or, and, and then it's maybe sometimes three people come in the room before you actually get to the doctor. And then you're, you're, you're right. You're reliving your worst day. And it's, it's sometimes feels a little invasive and just a little bit unkind. I think you've got it in your computer, like just pull up our records and you've got everything you need. I'm with you on that. It was, it was surprising to me as well as just the amount of time that we spent. The amount of bureaucracy you have to, have to, have to fight in general. My wife gave up her, her, her career to look after the children. Even though the children go to school and nursery, it's a full-time job when they're not around because she has all the appointments to arrange and all all of that sort of stuff. It, it, it's a full-time job. Yeah. It's not surprising people don't see that because, you know, everything is at home. 
people just don't see the struggles. They don't, they see a child in a wheelchair and it's like, oh dear. But that's it. That's all they see. They don't they don't know that you actually have to physically lift them in and physically take them out and it's hard and it's physically painful. And my daughter gets older and heavier, and I get older. <laughs> You know, the um yeah it's it gets harder and harder and of course my little boy is he's I'm beginning to when I pick him up even though he's only three and a half I can feel him getting heavier. Yeah, I say I say that all the time, Charlie, and I think that there's this strange reality about medical discoveries and you know extending life expectancy and that our kids are can be doing better. But it also means that as caregivers, we're getting older, right? And and there's a dynamic there that isn't often talked about is that caregiver strain. And not that, you know, we wouldn't want that. I mean, obviously we we want all the solutions and I want to have to lift my son and, and care for him. But there is just a reality there. And I'm curious for you, especially because you are, well, you're a little bit parallel to me in that we we've committed ourselves to this disease space professionally and personally. So you're living this 24-7. I mean, you're a scientist, you're an advocate, you work full-time in this space, and then you're also a dad. So you're you're 24-7. How do you, how do you as a caregiver, where do you find the strength and, and how do you recharge? How do you take care of yourself? How do we recharge? <laughs> I'm not sure I have yet. The million dollar question, right? <laughs> I mean, if you could talk about that. <laughs> the the inspiration is from always from the children, isn't it? You see them, you see them in the morning when you get them up, you see them during the night if they're in pain, you see them in the morning when you get them up. And it's that first smile from my little boy in the morning when I go to see him. He's, you know, he's big, his face lights up and it just melts your heart. And that's, that's like any parent with any child, of course. But I think I get so much back from the job I do. My job is, it's more than just a job that pays the bills. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's unbelievably fulfilling. And in some cases I'm able to, you know, I've been able to help people quite substantially in, in making connections with them to other people. So I think that's, I think it helps that I absolutely love my job. I think if I was doing a job I didn't like, that would make life unbearable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the recharging that that's a difficult one, really. There are two things that I do which give me mental peace, and that's circuit training, which I do three or four or five times a week for half an hour. It's physically painful, but mentally it helps. And the second thing is I sing. I sing in a choir. I've got a choir of about there are eight, ten of us. And before COVID, we were meeting up relatively regularly and singing. And I found that. By singing, I was only able to think about the music we were making, and that gave my brain a rest for an hour, which was amazing. Afterwards, I just felt fantastic. What kind of encouragement would you give to other people, and not even in you know my world of Duchenne or you know your world personally of epilepsy and cerebral palsy, but just you know if you're you're you have a chronic condition, a chronic disease, or you're caring for someone, or you just have like a a really big battle in front of you. How would you give them encouragement or what would you say to them? Well, I think it's important to get to know people who perhaps can understand you, who will have children with the same disorder or 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 a carers. because uh, it's amazing the the strength you can take from each other. Certainly people who set up support groups for different different disorders, you know, they become lifelong friends. But you don't have to 
spend the first 15, 20 minutes of your conversation telling everyone about how hard it is because everyone just gets it. But you just find that you have this natural connection. And, and I always find that people with children with disabilities always seem to be very kind, nice people. I think it's because they know what's important in life. I agree. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. You talked about Jasper and him waking up in the morning and you seeing his smile right away. I know they're young, but how do you think they describe their dad? I'm always very silly with them. I, I always clown around. I always make them laugh and giggle. I always play silly games because I know they, they find it funny. They find it very funny and it makes makes me smile and it just sort of snowballs. So I would hope to think that they mm-hmm. you know, their, their dad makes them makes them smile, makes them laugh. So that leads me to think of this when we talk about, you know, the the struggles, the surprises along the way, the unexpected diagnosis, the heartache, the heartbreak. There's also a lot of beauty in this journey, unexpected. What does a good day look like in your house? When, you know, when you lay your head on the pillow at night and you think, this is a really good day. What does that look like for you guys, for your family? It's a really good question. And I could probably have answered it quite easily if we hadn't had COVID in the past, because a good day for us is when on a Saturday, when we used to get up, then we'd go swimming. We all love swimming. And then we'd go out and perhaps we might have a meal on a Saturday. It was wonderful because we knew that we were going to have a nice meal at a place where we'd be looked after by people who understood us. And then we'd go for a walk and then we'd probably come home and have a cup of tea and some cake. And that for me was just a perfect day because I knew it was stuff I could anticipate that the day would go well if all those things fell into place because we were doing things that we all enjoyed. And it wasn't particularly exciting, but it was just nice because we were all happy. Charlie, I've thought about this a lot as a mom. I have three kids. Joseph has Duchenne. He's my youngest. I think we think about this in general as parents, but the future for our kids, I think, is especially sometimes heavy and and poignant when we think about it, when our kids have really severe medical diagnosis. But I think there's always hope, and I think that we can plan for a future. What what are your hopes and your your dreams for Imogene and Jasper? Well, ultimately, I, I just hope that they're happy and, and continue the way they're living their life at the moment. You know, it's, we never make Imogene do anything she doesn't really want to do. We always make sure that we give her opportunities to do things, like to go horse riding, for example. She absolutely loves that. So it's important you know, for her quality of life is that she she's happy as as much as possible because you know, she won't have the opportunities of other children you know, to go off to university probably or you know, go running or you know, have a boyfriend or all that sort of thing, probably. So in other ways, it's, it's, it's important to try and give her a fulfilling life that doesn't necessarily contain those things. When you look at your, you know, the last 20, 25 years, and we talked about the human genome, what do you see as the greatest contribution of the the mapping of the genome to to science? You know, what what's already happened now? And, and I mean, in a general sense, not necessarily particularly for one disease or one treatment, but what do you think the greatest contribution is and what could it be in the future when we talk about mapping that genome? So perhaps I'll 
I, I, I can just turn that around slightly and, and, and make a comment about the sort of promises that we made when this first started the Human Genome Project. You know, I remember back in 94, 95, someone at my work saying, oh, well, within 10 years, we'll have a cure for lung cancer. I was like, that's really exciting. And of course, that never happened. Uh, and we made similar promises to sort of the pharmaceutical industry. You know, we said, you know, when, when, when we finished the human genome in the early 2000s, we will be able to work with you and help and, and you know, we'll promise all sorts of stuff that we can do with you. And of course, that never materialised. And I think the pharma industry probably thought, is genomics really going to help us? And of course, I, you know, I, I'd be passionate that, that it does and it, and, and, and it will. And I think now we're beginning to see this sort of relationship with the pharma industry and genomics coming closer again, you know, because actually now we are at a position where we, you know, genomics can really help with drug design and looking at adverse reactions, all that sort of thing. So I would say that obviously the greatest impact has been in the area of health. There are lots of things that the human genome is interesting to look at. For example, it, it, you know, it's interesting to look at things like ancestry and how you can sort of map different populations, how they've evolved over time. I mean, that's a really interesting subject, but I, I, I'm not so sure. I think the impact on, 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 on human health is, is, is the greatest thing. And of course, as, as, as it gets cheaper and cheaper, it opens up so many more opportunities to people who, who, who are less well off live in low income, uh, middle income places. And you know, this is something that I think the technology is, is, is getting to the state now where it is, it's going to be sort of accessible to, if not all of the world, a lot of the world. That's where the massive, massive impact happens. So as we wrap up our time together, I'm curious when I think about all, all of your experience, all the things that you are, you know, scientist, advocate, and dad, when you look at all that together, you're 24 hours in a day. What do you hope your legacy is? Well, I always like to think that it would be great if I could leave the world just a tiny bit nicer than it was when I joined it. I hope that I can really develop and help develop the work looking into cerebral palsy genomics and also preterm birth genomics. Cerebral palsy is the biggest cause of uh, child disability, I, I believe, and millions and millions of people around the world who you know, have it for life and it, it gets worse. If, if you want to talk about sort of economics, if you can prevent these things from happening, you, you can save healthcare providers enormous amounts of money. Of course, in my point of view, it's the life of the patient that's most important. Of course, you know, you've got to take into consideration economics, but uh, I would hope that I would have some impact on that, even if it's going to be tiny, tiny. I'm not one of these, you know, super professors who... You know, who, who leads all these these sorts of studies? But you know, I'm, I'm actively actively involved as a scientist and as a dad in these in these things. Well, Charlie, in my opinion, I think you can already check that off your list. Leaving this world a nicer place than it was when you got here, making an impact on you know science and a better future for everybody who faces a, a catastrophic diagnosis. What an incredible impact and. And I would say you're not done yet, but so maybe you haven't left your legacy, but you are you are actively leaving it as you get up every day and work. It's just an absolute pleasure to talk to you and an honor to get some insights into your world. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. 
Production support was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.